Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, channel pros. Welcome back to Channel Journeys. This is your host and channel chief, Rob Spee. I can't believe we're already midway through February 2022. This year is moving way too fast already. Every week, I am seeing press announcements about some manufacturer or software vendor launching a new partner program. That's not too surprising. At the Channel Focus event that I was at uh, back in November, 80% of the participants said they were modernizing their partner program for the new partner ecosystem. Today, you're going to hear about a partner program that I love. Instead of being designed by partner tiers, it's designed by the way partners go to market. And I think that is the way that we should be thinking. We need to design our programs around the new ecosystems and the motions that partners are doing, not just by strict sales tiers, uh, the old-fashioned transactional channel program. Before we get to that, though, I want to thank you for listening, and I want to thank Allbound for sponsoring Channel Journeys. You can't run an efficient partner business without an efficient and powerful partner management system to support it. Allbound is the maker of a world-leading partner portal. Their PRM is fast and easy to set up. Their user interface makes it easy on partners to collaborate with you on co-selling and co-marketing. It includes the ability for partners to rebrand your white label collateral. They have best-in-class reviews for user experience, ease of use, and excellent customer support. And you can check them out at allbound.com. All right, today's guest has a diverse channel background with a strong track record of developing winning channel strategies. I am speaking with Tim Mackey. He's the VP of Worldwide Channels at Armis. They recently launched the Armis Partner Experience Program called Apex to support a modern partner ecosystem. It's pretty cool. Are you ready to learn how to craft a modern partner program to build a modern partner ecosystem? Let's go. Hey, Tim, good afternoon or good morning where you are. Welcome to Channel Journeys. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. Yeah, likewise. Great to have you. Where are you hunkered down today? Hunkered down in Dallas, Texas. So that's home. Yep. That's home for you. All right. Awesome. Well, great to to have you on the program and congratulations. I heard you guys recently launched a new partner program, the Apex program. That's right. It's uh, We've been working on it for the last, I don't know, six, seven months. We jammed about two years worth of work in the six months. And it is the Apex uh, Partner Program. Apex actually stands for Armist Partner Experience. So it's not just a program, it's an experience. Well, and it's all about partner experience these days. So I'm really excited to dive into this with you. Before we jump into that, though, you joined Armis last April, I believe. So that time that you talked about putting into the program, cramming two years into a short time frame, was since you came on board. What was it that you found? What was kind of the state of the channel when you arrived? Well, the uh, that's and that's a great question. The state of the channel was uh, was evolving. You know, we just come through. I think what was a very difficult year from the pandemic in our particular space. We had launched a kind of a fledgling pro- uh, program before I got here that you know had a couple of levels, had some kind of target areas. But there was no real teeth in it. There was no training to back it up or require. There were no kind of get, real give gets. It was a good framework to start with, but there wasn't anything with any meat in it. So, you know, when I started, that was really kind of one of the number one, I don't want to say complaints, but number one issues for the channel professionals that were here 
that we needed to modify. So we we immediately got to work on that to uh, to evolve. Did you have a kind of a single thread channel, or did you have a diverse ecosystem already? Well, it uh, it had been a diverse ecosystem, not by design, but by just evolution. You know how it is. I mean, you know, to me, you know, you get a couple of a, a good startup company. It's got a good technology. All of a sudden, you you're engaging with partners without really knowing you're engaging with partners or without a real strategy. And that's really what we had was we had kind of a loose confederation of engaging partners that really weren't tied together uh, in any way. It was starting to get managed appropriately with different segments like GSIs and alliance partners versus resellers and distribution. And so it was somewhat partitioned off, but it was really, it was, it was in the kind of early stages. Yeah. Well, and just to put it into, into context and maybe we step back and let people know who and what is Armis that we're talking about first off. So, uh, so Armis is a unified asset management discovery and security company. So, um, so our, our big mantra is, well, we see everything. And so, yeah, how do you know how to secure all of your unmanaged devices unless you can see what's out there? And that's basically what we do. We go out, we identify all of the different components on your network, uh, managed, unmanaged, we see everything. And then we can tell you what you've got. And, you know, and, and we're not talking necessarily your laptops and servers, that's covered by other areas. But we're talking your cameras, your thermostats, your printers, the things that are unmanaged, the things that most people don't know that they don't know that they have, and or they don't know how much they've got. And that's what we do. We go and we tell you, okay, well, here's what all you've got. Here's what it means to you. And I mean, here's what you can do to help secure it. That's what we do. Yeah. And all those things that you don't even know about are security threats. Well, that's where the bad guys are coming in these days. They're not coming in through the next gen firewall or the artificially intelligent uh, machine learned protected endpoint. They're coming in through the doggy door that's hooked up to the network or the fish tank or the thermostat. That's where the big guys are seeing or the bad guys are seeing the, uh, the, the ways in these days. And that's what we help protect against. That's pretty incredible to hack through my thermostat. Yeah, it is. Yeah, to me, it's, it's the new endpoint, the way I look at it. I've been an endpoint for a while. This to me is just the next wave. Yeah, it's really wild. So were there other things driving you in terms of you know, wanting to create a new partner program or, or maybe some internal pressures? No, well, other than the fact that uh, that Brian Gumble, who's the CRO, and that's where it, we're, that's where it all really starts. The CRO can dictate both upstream to the C-suite as well as downstream to the sales teams that we will be a channel company. And his and he knew that we had a good framework, but he and I discussed it during the interview process. And I've known Brian for a while, and he wanted a world class partner program. And that encompassed all of the different different groups together, all the disparate ways to go to market with through different channel partners and tie them all together. And that's what we did in Apex. I had a very similar conversation with our CRO when I joined. So I know what you're talking about. Well, you have to have the support of the CRO or else you're bashing your head against the wall because the CRO can make, you know, to me, there's, there's two main people that are going to help whether or not you're going to be successful or not. The CRO is one from a business driving perspective and making sure that everybody adheres to, you know, uh, engaging the channel early, not taking business direct, uh, not quoting to the end users, all that good stuff. Then the other one is the CFO, because building a channel costs money and it takes time. And, you know, the the benefits that you're going to have two or three years from now actually start today and it costs money. And a lot of times when you're in startup mode, it's kind of hard to look out that far. But at this point, you've got to. Yeah, you need that CFO support. And you guys are making an investment in the channel with Apex. Tell us, what does Apex all include, this new partner program? Yeah, so it's three different kind of tracks. 
go to market. You've got what's called, we try to get away from the normal nomenclature and go more toward, well, what's the motion? What's the sales motion of the partners that we're doing out there? And what we found was we've got a sell track, which is kind of your traditional resale. We've got a manage track, which kind of your MSSP uh, go to market. We've got your uh, your build track, which are going to be kind of um, your OEM type partners that take your uh, technology, incorporate it in with theirs and uh, and roll it out either as like an Armis inside or or may even be white label branded as a, as a solution that they're offering to their customers. And then the last one is the service track, which are really kind of for partners. There is a, there is a segment of the partner community out there that just does service or service delivery like instant response or risk assessment, um, things like that. And so this is a that's the track for them. And so it's really kind of four go-to-market tracks. And then that that, at least the resale and the MSSP are broken into multiple levels. We've got the ascent at the top, and then we've got we've got summit at the top, ascent in the middle, and then we have kind of authorized for partners who just kind of uh, want to explore and you know get the newsletter but aren't making a commitment to be in the program. Are those the same or very similar to the the metallic tiers that you see in partner programs? Sure. Yeah. So we once again we wanted to kind of uh, respin it a little bit because uh, and we we thought well we're going to keep with the uh, the apex and the mountain climbing you know stake your claim you know Zig Ziglar see at the top kind of a thing so so that we did yeah so your authorized really is going to be kind of your old silver partners ascent are going to be golds and summit you know traditionally platinum yeah but I love how you have these tracks. And you're not defining partner by some partner type. It's by the motion of how you want to engage. And so I assume any partner can go in one or multiple tracks if they want to. Yeah. Well, and that was the whole rationale behind it is, you know, partners, I think there's been a real evolution here. You know, and look, you've been around for a while as well. And I mean, you know, the last couple of decades, we've seen an evolution. There's so much gray as to who partners are these days, because you can have a partner do just one of those, but then there's partners that do all four. You no, know, and you know some of the SIs out there. It all depends on how the end user wants to consume it. I mean, and and I've literally been in situations where it's like, well, how do you want to consume the the technology, Mister End User? Do you want to buy it? Do you want to rent it? Do you want to? Do you want us to do it for you? Do you want you know? And, and so, really, it's it's uh, and I love that is that regardless of what a partner's go to market is, we've got a place for them. And we're not pigeonholing them into one or the other. The agreement, actually, I haven't done an agreement like this until we got here, but we thought, all right, well, let's clean the whiteboard and do this too. It's a kind of a master T's and C's with addendums for each of the tracks. So you can have partners who say, well, I, I primarily want to do instant response, but I may resale and I've got an MSSP division. So, okay, well, then they can they just sign three of the addendums, but it's only one T's and C's that they sign. Yeah. One main contract. One main contract. Yeah. Yeah. What's been the reaction from partners? Well, they love it. And I think, you know, this is one of these things that's evolving uh, because, you know, our goal really isn't to have, you know, tens of thousands of partners or even thousands of partners. You know, I'm a less is more kind of uh, kind of channel leader. I want to make sure that we're that we're going deep with the ones who want to go deep with us. And and, you know, and this to me is is always good to do is to say, look, let's let's launch a new program. Let's have a new agreement. And those partners that are serious about going along with us on the journey they'll come along and those that aren't will um, will fall out. And so we're in the middle of that migration period right now as we as we move partners over into the new program. But the adoption and the response has been uh, pretty much what we thought it was going to be. You talked about partner experience and 
I'm sure partner enablement is a big component of that because you want to have a great partner experience and you want partners to drive a great customer experience, right? So talk about the enablement side of this and what you guys have implemented along with the program. So you, you can't have one without the other. To me, you know, there's a, there's a cycle here because, you know, bookings and revenue are the ultimate goal. Well, that just doesn't, when that, that's what the C-suite always looks for. Right? They're like, well, where's the bookings and revenue? And, and when you're building what we're building, you've got to be able to track and manage all of the, the leading indicators that go into that. Because, you know, bookings comes from pipe, pipe comes from deal registrations, deal registrations come from marketing events. Marketing events comes from an opportunity creation, comes from partners who know what you do. And that doesn't happen unless you've got an adequate training and enablement curriculum and regimen to go with it. Now, what we had when I got here was basically kind of a master diver class right out of the gate, which was the ambassador program. But what we were missing was the basics, the automated sales and tech 101 courses or the, and the subsequent 201 courses where we could push the masses through. And to me, you can't have a program unless you've got an easy way, because that to me is one of the requirements that should be in a program is, is okay, well, you got to go get three salespeople trained and two engineers trained or six and three trained or whatever the, whatever the program spells out. And we didn't have that. What we had was immediately right out of the gate, the ambassador program, which is like a half day instructor led session. And new partners are like, I'm not willing to make that investment because I, you know, and we don't even know if this is going to work or not. So we did a couple things in parallel. One, we started developing a new program, but then to support the new program, we developed a new training curriculum, which was the sales and tech 101 courses, which are modular in nature. It's, uh, you know, it takes an hour. It's automated. The, the, the partner sales rep logs in goes, takes the test. He can do it over lunch. Takes about an hour, hour 15 to do. Like I said, it's about seven or eight modules. And then um, you you take a little 20 question test at the end, spit you out your certification. The uh, the Tech 101 is a build on on top of that. It's about an additional 30 minutes uh, in addition to the sales component that goes into little bit more of what the technology is and how we do it and um, how it's it's positioned in the marketplace. So we, we wanted to have uh, a, rel- a, a realistic barrier to entry because beforehand we had zero. And to me, it's like, well, I at least want partners who are willing to put a little bit of effort into this, uh, but not without having to go and do an ambassador training course. So you want them to at least learn how to snorkel before they do the master dive 200 feet on nitrogen. Yeah. So it's basically, if you're for the scuba divers out there, it's like the, you know, the, the open, basic open water course. And then you go, then we'll have the advanced open water. And then you got dive master and master diver. And so so for me, it's a, it's a process. And you know we're at a point now where we are determining and partners are already starting to step up to the plate. They're like, okay, great. The 101 is good. You know, what else, you know, what can we do with a couple of our engineers or a couple of our sales guys that want to learn more? Now we're starting to get into those advanced courses. You know, you can have a lot of conversation and, and uh, arguments internally around what level should partners have. So did you change the program so like to meet the levels You've got to like start with 101 or do you have requirements for that master diver? You know, the, the ambassador, is that all like only at the platinum summit or whatever your top level is? Right. So the, the ambassador really was always going to be to me what we would want to have for the summit partners as mandatory. And to me, it's out there because that requires a pretty substantive investment of time and effort for, you know, engineers to go and do. And we're going to be doing more along those lines because, uh, you know, we're, what we want to do is have kind of some tech 
summits offsite, maybe send them back to Tel Aviv for three days or somewhere here in the US where we get together for a couple of days and the ambassadors can get together and do a real, real kind of deep dive. They get to meet with product management. They get to get to meet with R&D. You know, for those that we want to send back to Tel Aviv, I mean, they can go see the mothership and, and hang out with the crowd there. I've done that before in other lives and it works really, really well. But we only want to do that for those those select few, the kind of the Delta Force special operation type engineers who are capable and willing to uh, to lead with us. So that's how we, so it is a tiered approach. It's not a one size fits all. We've got different layers for, for different types of, of what the commitments are that partners are willing and able to make. How do you put teeth into a program? I think you mentioned that the, the program you stepped into really didn't have any teeth to it. How did you add teeth to your new program? Yeah. Well, to me, training is one. Uh, and, and that's a kind of an easy one. And the second one is performance, you know, and, and there was a big, big debate around, but oh, do we put revenue requirements in there? I'm like, you know, at this, st- at this stage of where we are, and I've, I don't know, this is my fourth or fifth startup. And I, it's so, it's so chunky, the revenue uh, is, it's very difficult at this stage to put in revenue requirements. And so to me, what's, what's paramount at this point is that we see activity. And the best way to measure activity is deal registration. So there's some minimum quarterly deal registration requirements that you know, and we're not talking about a ton, uh, but but deal registration that you know you need to have, you know, X amount of new opportunities inbound on a quarterly basis to show that you're generating activity and pipe. Because if if you're doing deal registrations, well, then that's automatically building pipe. And if you build the pipe, then ultimately, and you know this, there will be business and bookings and revenue that come out of that. Now, what, whatever the ratio is, three to one, four to one, that I think all depends on company to company. But I think industry average is kind of you know four to one. So our whole goal is to say, look, you know, let's get you trained and enabled and let's put together some marketing initiatives that are going to put us together uh, in front of customers to co-create new opportunities and deal registrations. And so for me, it's two components. It's deal registration and training. If they don't hit those minimum requirements, then what? Well, that's the golden question. How much do you want to enforce this? And I think you know, to me, that is a stake in the ground to say, look, if you're not willing to make the minimum investments to be in, in, the, in the, the program, but then we'll put you, we'll demote you to authorized until you can demonstrate, you know, the, the capability and the interest. Now, if we've got a partner who's making an effort and, you know, they've done the trainings and they're doing marketing events and they're one or two deal registrations short, I mean, we're not going to kick them out of the program. But, you, but, you know, a lot of times, you know, you have partners that, that have a deal in hand and they want to end the program. And they do a deal, and then there's nothing. And so, you know, to me, this allows us to uh, to manage that appropriately because you know there's there's two good requirements that I think you know are mandatory for partners. That is one that they have the capabilities and the technical chops to uh, to, to to promote your solution, and two, they've got the willingness to lead with it. And if partners aren't willing to lead with it, or even do the trainings, or come up with the minimum deal registrations, then they'll they will get moved to authorized. Yeah. No, that makes sense. You talked about the services track component. Have you figured out how to help these partners, particularly the new partners, new to services, how to stand them up and get them successful? Well, what I found is that um, that is very hard for vendors to teach partners how to do. They're either a services company or they're not. I don't think us coming in as Armas uh, are going to teach them how to be a services organization. Now, with that said, uh, what we're finding and these and, and that those that track that and the and the build track are pretty much invite only, okay? Because uh, to me, you know, we want to make sure once again, partners has the ability and the willingness, okay? I can I keep going back to those the, the aptitude and the attitude. 
And if we've got a partner who can demonstrate, you know, both of those, like a good instant response company, that that's what they do. Okay, great. We're not going to necessarily have to teach them how to be a services company, but we'll teach them how to do, you know, instant response with Armis. And these are all capabilities that we have in-house today, but this is not something, we're not a services company. We are a software manufacturer uh, that uh, that has developed a, an amazing asset discovery and management technology. We don't want to be in the services business, but we will want to treat, teach our channel how to do that on our behalf. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we got the program. We've got partner enablement. What about the team, your channel team to support this, this initiative? What does that look like? And have you... Yeah, so what, yeah you're, you're smelling what I'm cooking, Rob. I mean, to me, I always, I call it the four Ps. It's people, partner, process, program. So we've covered off on a couple of those. The, the people to me is huge because you can have the vision, which I think, we, which we have. But unless you've got the people in the field to help you uh, execute tactically on it, then it ain't, it's just not going to happen. So we had a very, very Spartan crew here when I first joined, and we're now in the process of tripling it. So, I mean, I'll have, uh, I don't know, six to seven partner business managers in North America. We'll have six to seven in EMEA. Uh, we'll have four to five in APAC. I've got Latin America coverage. So so we are, and that's, that's up from five that I had uh, when I first started here. So so to me, you know, it's about making sure we've got the proper coverage and it's not, and it's, it's broken into two categories. It's making sure we've got the right geographic coverage, but then also the right kind of segment coverage, like, you know, Fed and SLED or national accounts or, you know, and then we've also got a team that's managed on kind of the key, uh, uh, key accounts, like some of the large GSI accounts, which are global in nature. So we've got global account managers as well. So we are building this the way it needs to get built. And we're midstream in that process. Although the big goal, actually we're beyond midstream, but the big goal, because our fiscal year end is here in January, but our big goal has been to, to get that all buttoned up here by year end. The partner managers, Tim, do they cover all those motions that you described? Yes and no. So what I found is that the territory managers can, can really be good tactical executioners of the larger major accounts that are kind of run by a quarterback or a GAM. Because if you've got a global account manager, they can't be everywhere in the globe at the same time. So the partner business managers that are in the territories, they'll manage, you know, your kind of your local resellers. They'll help manage the, the local branches of national resellers as well as global partners. So if we've got a large GSI that has a deal going down in Texas, then, you know, we've got somebody here that can help kind of Sherpa that through the process here in Texas or in Munich or in Malaysia. So, uh, so for me, you know, I, I, and, and that's why I call them partner business managers versus kind of channel account managers, because they are managing the business territorially for multiple different go-to-markets. So if it's an MSSP deal, if it's a resale deal, if it's a SLED Fed deal, if it's a GSI led deal, they, they can be involved to the extent that their assistance is required. Yeah. It, I think, you know, as we're shifting from the idea of channel to ecosystem, the role of channel account manager is also morphing or the title, like you said, to, to partner business manager or almost ecosystem manager sometimes. Yeah, I mean, channel account management. I started off as a CAM back in the day, and you know, to me, it's a it's kind of a '90s term, you know. And uh, you know, and, and channel account managers, you know, we're we're you know, it has evolved from more of kind of a hey, we're bringing in lunch, kind of honking wave type stuff to to sitting down and doing. I actually treat them as investment managers because really, a partner business manager is a is a channel mutual fund manager. At the end of the day, they're managing a portfolio of ten 
partner stocks in their mutual fund with a kind of a, a 10 or 15 with a focus on three. And uh, the, the dog stocks, we, we, wanna, we don't want to spend a lot of time with those. And the blue chip stocks, we do. So you have to approach this almost like a mutual fund manager instead of, uh, hey, I'm just going to, you know, this partner is semi-interested, so I'm going to you know, bring them lunch. I mean, it's, it's, it goes beyond that. I really want them to look at this as managing their own business. Yeah, it does go way beyond that. How do you drive success out of that team and motivate them when it's not just purely transactional? Well, look, the, you don't come to work at a place, you don't come to work at a place like Armas if you're not used to treating it that way, simply because, look, we've got an amazing opportunity here. And this one has success IPO written all over it. And so for me, you know, and I've instilled that with everybody from the get-go to say, look, uh, you got an amazing opportunity here to be part of something uh, uh, fantastic. So in order to do that, we need to, we need to spend our time and our money and our resources in the area where that's going to get us the best ROI. And so once again, keep going back to that investment kind of theme, because really that's what it's, it's all about. We're all in this to drive success and to make money and to make our partners make money. Which means we just don't have time to mess around with partners who you know aren't gonna gonna join the the ride with us, and so um, so that's why you know we're we're constantly reviewing the portfolios, determining you know who's stepping up to the plate, who's getting the trainings done, and so once again, this all goes back to the teeth of the program that was difficult to do before we got before you know we put this in place. Now we've got a program. There's teeth in that program. How are the partners performing against that? Are they getting the trainings done? Are we running marketing activities? Are we building pipe and creating deal registrations? So to me, it's a constant assessment of those things. We've built all the dashboards to be able to track and manage all of the metrics that that determine whether or not we're being successful or not. Yeah. You mentioned the four Ps and we haven't talked about process. Were there some process issues that you had to tackle and and, uh, maybe add? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. This is the one that goes often ignored. But I can't think of, of honestly, uh, one of the more important ones, because if you can't track and, and metric the business, then you can't manage it appropriately. So, you know, so and this can go as simple as, you know, a deal registration happens. OK, great. Was a partner led or partner fed? You know, did Armas source that that we fed to the partner or did the partner source that? So we've had to go in. We've hired a, a channel ops resource who's fantastic, who's come in and we've built all these dashboards to us so we can now manage you know, how much of the business is running through the channel, which is a very, very high percentage now. Uh, but how much of that is partner led versus partner fed? We had zero that visibility. And so we've actually gone back historically and tried to at least create a footprint of what it looked like, you know, six, eight quarters ago, uh, which is difficult to do because a lot of the people aren't here anymore. But at least to determine, okay, well, here's where we were a year or two years ago. Here's where we are today. And how we track that moving forward. We had none of that visibility because once again, you know, look, Armis. When you're in that first phase of product validation, you care about one thing, and that's booking deals. Where it comes from, who drove it, who sourced it, nobody really cares. But when you entered into this kind of um, pre-IPO aggressive growth phase, which is where we are now, that acceleration phase, where the money guys have said, okay, this is a viable technology, let's, uh, let's layer in the four Ps, then all of a sudden to me, it's like, well, we better be tracking these things before somebody asks me for them. So I've, I've been in that, I mean, I've seen this before. So that's why we're like, well, let's build it now. So we've got visibility into it. So we're ready when they come asking for it. Yeah. We were chatting earlier, Tim, about what does it take or what does it mean to be a channel company? Mm, yeah. 
Share your thoughts on that. I thought it was kind of interesting. Yeah. To me, look, everybody, every company is a company with a channel. All right. But what does that mean? I, and look, no offense to my direct um, sales guy friends, but I never met a direct sales guy who didn't think they were a channel expert. And that's, uh, that's kind of my old, uh, that's my old us versus them joke. I love, uh, I love sales guys. Uh, I'm a sales guy. But to me, when you work in a technology company, you have to have those guys to get the company off the ground. But there comes a point where they've got to relinquish some control and allow the channel to kind of do what the channel does. And you can't do that if you're continuously telling them to scoot over, we'll drive. All right. And so to me, if we're not teaching the channel how to go out and hunt and, and skin it and help, help, help us cook it, then we're never going to get to be a channel company. And so what, you know, so if we're touching every deal, Rob, and we're touching every aspect of that deal, then that's a high friction model. We're never going to get this off the ground. We're just looking at the channel as a lead generation source. And that's where we were, not surprisingly, and we haven't cornered the market on that. Every startup is like that you, once you get to a certain point. But we spent the last year migrating this from just a channel, uh, just a company with a channel uh, to a true channel company where we are now tracking and saying, okay, well, X percentage of our business was partner-led. That's going to continue to grow, but that's not going to grow unless we teach them how to do it the way that we do it. And, um, and that's why you have to have the education. That's why you have to have the program in to reinforce us. All these things are components, but that to me is a velocity model that once we get to where you know, the channels out there generating business that we're not involved in. And that to me is, is uh, ultimately where you want to be. And in order for you to be a half a billion or a billion dollar company, that's you have to have a large percentage of the channel doing that for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, we all chal- are challenged with that, you know, in the conversations with sales and they're, they naturally want to have control and they want to run the deal and, and get it done as fast as, as quickly as possible. And, and so they think of it as that, you know, I don't have time for that partner to spend enabling them and, and being part of that. But it's to get true scale, we've got to, we've got to make that investment. Yeah. And it's, you know, and look, I think, you know, what, what ultimately happens is that, you know, we'll be involved in the large, large, the super large deals. But to me, what about those mid-market opportunities that are, you know, maybe a little bit smaller than what your company averages, but if we can get the, the you know, each channel partner generating 10 of those, a quarter or a year that we're not involved in, then I'll take those all day long. I mean, I'd much rather have, you know, you know, 10, 50 or 60K deals instead of one $500,000 deal that we're, we're policing. So, so to me, the less we're touching, but that, that only happens with partners getting, gaining experience with your technology, getting more comfortable with demoing it, specking it, proposing it, you know, and that's why, you know, having a channel team with, and we've also added channel, channel sales engineers to the team, by the way, which is something else that I failed to mention. So, so it's kind of a pod concept. We've got channel, we've got partner business managers, we've got channel SEs, we've got channel marketing, all of these things going to better enable the channel so they can do more and more without us having to touch it. Yeah. I don't know if you know Taylor McDonald, I've had him on this show twice now, but he's my hero of setting up that autonomous channel. He was at Sage Intact where he got 50, he got it to the point where 50% of their revenue was just autonomous partner-led business. It was quite incredible. Yeah. And I think that's ultimately where, you know, we always want to get to. I mean, I, I, I saw that at some of the previous companies that, uh, that I've been part of. We did that at Riverbed. Uh, we were on our way to doing that at Silence. We definitely were, were underway at Sentinel One. And I see the same thing here, but it, it all starts really with making sure that you've got the support of the Brian Gumbles, you know, and the Jonathan Cars or the CFOs of the world who are saying, okay, you know, because it, as long as you can demonstrate that you're getting success, which is why that operations component and visibility of the business is so important because you can say, look, 
bookings and revenue are coming, but look at all the other stuff that we're doing. Look at all the deal registers we've gotten. Look at what the partner is driving. And, you know, and we're, I would say we are six months into a real earnest approach around managing and running it that way. So it's just going to do nothing but get bigger and better for us as we move forward. Yeah. Well, that, that's fantastic, Tim. Congratulations on the, on the work so far and a lot coming. So this is where I like to jump and learn a little bit more about you, Tim, and your channel journey. The first thing I've got to ask you, I was looking at LinkedIn. You went to high school in Egypt? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So my father worked for a, a, an aviation and aeronautics company, Bell Helicopter, and he ran Middle East and Africa and uh, traveled a ton uh, when I was growing up and, and kind of got tired of traveling. So a uh, long time ago, I was, uh, I guess, uh, the tail end of junior high. He said, all right, we're, uh, we're moving to Cairo. So that, start, that started an amazing adventure for me that has kind of led me to where I am today. Because I mean, these global roles for me, I'm actually probably more comfortable uh, doing business overseas than I am here in North America, simply because it's kind of built into my DNA. But that, you know, life boils down to a handful of moments. And uh, me going to school overseas in the Middle East gave me a whole new perspective on life. Pretty wild. What a great opportunity. So was this an American school or, or did you learn Arabic? What did you do? Yeah, I did, actually. And it's funny because uh, uh, whenever we stand up the Middle East, I'm always end up uh, having conversations with the guys we're interviewing and they're blown away by it. Uh, and I, I have forgotten a lot, but yeah, it was an American school. Cairo American College was the name. It was a K through 12 system. And it was probably 50% American and then 50% from all over the globe. I think it was 60 or 65 countries of people that, uh, that, that participated, but uh, an amazing experience. And I'm still very, very close with that crowd because if you've, uh, if you've ever grown up overseas and, and I, I think they call them third world kids or whatever, there, there's an actual term for it for, you know, because we, we did without a lot. Uh, and all we really had were, you know, our friendships and our families there. And because, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, food, there were, you know, I didn't get Mexican food for a year, which, which drove me nuts being a Texan. And, uh, you know, but uh, so, so for me, you know, we did without a lot. And uh, it was a real, real bonding, kind of a band of brothers type experience. You get very close to your family and you get close to your friends. And, and those friendships still, uh, still remain today. That's awesome. So your dad worked for Bell Helicopters. Yeah, he was a retired Air Force pilot, uh, colonel in the Air Force, retired, and then went to work for Bell. So I find it interesting because, you know, my dad had two companies he worked for. One was the U.S. Air Force. The other one was Bell Helicopter over 40 years, and which he finds it very difficult to relate to our industry where we're changing companies every two to three years. And so that's uh, just generationally different. That's for sure. That's wild. My dad was a retired Navy pilot, and he flew Bell Helicopters. Ah, okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I grew up with them. I uh, absolutely love them. And to me, it was just a big, big part of our life always growing up. That's really cool. So how did you get into the channel from, from Egypt to the channel? Well, it, it, uh, it certainly wasn't uh, a direct line like that. I mean, I went to school at, uh, here at Texas A&M in Texas, which people always ask me, what was the culture, culture shock like moving to Cairo? And I'm like, it was bad, but not as bad as going from Cairo to College Station. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I got out of college. I was, a, uh, I was a headhunter for a year. I was in a financial consultant with Merrill Lynch for about four, which, which is why I, I, I brought my mutual fund and financial hat to this because this, to me, I, I see a lot of parallels. And I got into tech in the early 90s and um, start off in inside sales. And then, and then like most people, you have a choice. You can either go into kind of territory sales, or you can go into kind of major accounts. And I, I went channels. Um, was, I managed OEM accounts, and uh, which led to some distri to uh, distribution and OEM accounts. 
And from then on out, it just morphed and, you know, carried a bag uh, with companies like uh, HP back in the day. And then I ended up becoming a manager and which I never thought I, I necessarily wanted to do. But uh, that just then evolved into, you know, runs at uh, Riverbed and a, um, a couple of other startups and, and places like then Silence doing Global and then Sentinel One and, and then here. So it's been it's a journey. You know, I would have never would have thought I have a psychology degree. I would have never thought graduating from college, I'd end up doing what I'm doing today. But I look, I honestly look to my experience growing up overseas. That kind of, that was, that kind of prepped me for what I'm doing today. Cause it's, uh, it's very much the, very similar. Great foundation. Any advice that you might have, I'll put you on the spot. Any, any advice for, you know, people listening in here early in they're early in on their channel career. Yeah. You know, I, I get this fairly often, you know, cause I'm always working with, with teams. I'm, I'm building teams and you know, and at least for the extent that the, the the field folks report directly to me before I layer in somebody else, I'm kind of back in those trenches, and it's it's always good to be in there. And that, and to me, you know, I guess the the best advice I could always give is to say, look, manage your business like it's a mutual fund, like you are an investment manager, uh, because not every partner is going to be the same. But really focus on the ones that you know have the aptitude and the attitude to want to engage with you. I can't think of a better place to be than in the channel. I kind of look at it as that huck fin. Why paint the fence yourself when you can get 10 of your friends to paint it for you? Even if it costs you a little bit of money, you know, you get more fences painted and you get more done. And I look at the channel the same way. And you've got to get good at, at developing a thick skin because when you work for companies like this, you invariably get people who are channel haters. They don't understand it. And you got to get really good at not only working externally with your partner community, but working internally on educating those at your company at what the channel is and what it can do for you, because that's half the battle. And it's not always waged successfully. And it's not, it's certainly, it's probably the hardest part of the job is working internally on convincing people that, hey, this is the way that you've got to go. And you're never, you know, you, you might get to 50 million. You might even get to 100 million by sure, which sheer will, but that you're never going to get beyond that, or you're not going to get there fast as you need to, unless you have a channel. It's imperative. You have to have it these days. I, that's great advice, Tim. I'm kind of cracking up because I'm thinking, you know, sales reps like to say, oh, those guys went into the channel because they couldn't sell. But I'm thinking now, sales reps are out there painting the fence. We are smarter and we go out and find people to paint it for us. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard that a couple of times too. And, you know, before I was ahead, I mean, look, I've made hundreds of thousands of cold calls. I've done direct sales. I sold Cutco knives door to door in college. And so I know what it's like to sell. I've done it before. And and every day is a sales job. I'm just doing it. I'm teaching others how to do it on our behalf. And so for me, and I actually had one of the greatest compliments here just within the last six months, one of my directors actually said, you know, you're a pretty good sales guy. And I'm like, well, we are in sales. We are sales. We're just teaching the mercenary sales force how to sell instead of us doing it ourselves. And that's how you're going to get the scale. Yeah. I've heard Cutco Knife Selling has a great training program. <laughs> well, you can laugh about it. I mean, I look at the places where they were hardcore sales. I mean, knocking on doors. I mean, the Cutco Knives, of course, you can buy them online these days. But I mean, this would have been late 80s, early 90s. And it was an amazing training program. Yeah, I was serious. No, I mean, yeah. Honestly, I go back to that. And there's a couple of pitches I still use uh, from that. Even my sister was like, you remember when you did that? You know, I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's but but, you know, whether it was Merrill Lynch, whether or not it was a, it was a recruiter, whether or not it was my 
early days here, uh, you know, hitting the phone, being an inside sales rep, because being in technology to me was easy compared to some of those other jobs. And and I guess that would be some of the other things. That, that's some of my advice to people coming right out of school is, look, find your way, go do and go do a number of things. You'll find your way eventually. I've got a couple of college age kids in the family and that we are working through that process right now. They don't know what they want to do. I'm like, don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. That's right. All right. Great ending words, Tim. Thank you so much for coming on the program, talking about your new partner program. I assume people can reach out to you on LinkedIn if they want to learn more. Absolutely. Always. Uh, and I, I get that all the time. A lot of folks reaching out, have questions, you know, want to have conversations or, or what have you. So uh, without a doubt, I'm a, that's, a, that's a great place to reach me. All right. Awesome. Good luck with the program and have a great 2022. Okay. Very good. Thanks for having me, Rob. Take care. You too. All right, guys. That was a fun chat with Tim. I think my first channel pro who went to high school in Egypt. Very cool. Thank you, Tim, for sharing elements of your program. Really great stuff. And thank you for listening. Thanks again to our sponsor, Allbound. Remember, if you're looking for an easier way to manage deal registrations, a better way to track partner opportunities, an easier way for your partners to access all of your sales and marketing materials, as well as trainings and certifications, be sure to check them out. Go to allbound.com. For today's show notes, just go to channeljourneys.com slash CJ83. You can subscribe while you're there. We have got a lot more great interviews coming up that you won't want to miss. Next episode, we'll be talking about IT channel trends that you need to know. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.